Commentary on the First Epistle of St. John the Theologian by St. Eustine Popovich What follows are the complete comments of St. Eustine on select verses from St. John the Theologian. Chapter 1, verse 1 That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, of the word of life. The fundamental good news, thought, and truth is, God the Logos became incarnate, so that we may become co-incarnate in Him. He became man, so that we may become divine. He, the eternal life, appeared on earth, so that we might have communion with Him and through Him. About the Logos of life. This is the theme of this gospel. It is as if the holy theologian wants to give us a new explanation of the basic message of his gospel. The Logos became flesh. God the Logos, who is the eternal life, came to us. That which was from the beginning, i.e. the eternal, came down from heaven, became flesh, became our earthly reality, accessible to our senses, our comprehension, and our sensibility. That which we have heard. We heard the message of God the Logos, that is, what we have seen with our eyes. We saw God in the flesh, God in the world, God among us, that is, which we have looked upon. We have seen and we have looked upon God in man, that our hands have handled. Before his death on the cross and after his resurrection from the dead, we have touched the body of God the Logos in the same way. We have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. The word of life, the logos of life, the God of life. God, the logos, had become our closest reality, and we examine this in the most evident and experimental way. This method is purely experimental and empirical. The logos of life is, in reality, the logic of life, the wisdom of life, and the word of life. Before him, life was irrational, senseless. Before him, life was illogical and consequently non-logical. It did not have any compatibility with logic. Everything was chaos. Everything was a bazaar of senselessness. Before him, the words of life. Life was deaf and mute. It did not have the ability to speak, to say, to profess to express itself, its secret, its hardships, its pain, and its joy. With him, life gains all of that. Life uttered its first words because it received the Logos. Life received its purpose because it received the Logos. Life became all-wise because it received the Logos. Life had become devoid of the Logos, illogical, senseless, purposeless, and foolish, through sin and because of sin. That which is of human thought, whether it be Greek, Roman, Hindu, or any other, was and remained an ideal, an idea, an abstraction. And the otherworldly had, through the incarnation of God the Logos, become life, our earthly life. To receive the Logos and the logic of life, it is not necessary to go into the other world because the logic and the Logos is here among us. We have the Logos of life. Therefore, we know the logic of life, the purpose of life, 
and the meaning of life. If we did not know the beginning of life, behold, there it is, God the Logos, for he is that which was from the beginning. Life is not something that is senseless, but rather something that was divinely logical from the very beginning. Sin is a power that takes away the Logos, deprives one of the divine logic, of logicality, of the divine purpose and providence. In reality, sin is the only thing that makes life senseless. Chapter 1, verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Just as light is in Christ, so is darkness in us, darkness caused by sin. The darkness of sin is poured forth on all human beings without exception. There is not one man, not even the greatest born of women, who is the light of truth. The true light is only that person who is completely without sin, sinless. This person among men is Christ the God-man. Furthermore, because of the presence of darkness in nature, not a single man is true light, not even light in general. Accordingly, it is said of the forerunner that he was not that light. The understanding and realization that humanity is under sin and in sin is based on true self-knowledge, especially in Christian anthropology. Whosoever teaches to the contrary deceives himself and lacks all truth whatsoever. All other teachings about man are false. Humanistic teaching about man is as such. It glorifies man in his impure and unclean essence due to sin and its evil powers. Humanism is altogether idolatry of the worst kind because it is the idolization of man. It is founded on the principle that man is by nature good and self-sufficient. It represents the most calamitous lie, which has caused so many tragedies in the world of humanistic science, enlightenment, and culture, for it has led them to such prideful self-glorification and to the glorification of man to such an extent that they have renounced the existence of sin. Sin does not exist. That is one of the fundamentals of humanism's ethical maxims. In reality, humanity is overflowing of flaws, defects, rifts, and tragedies, which in the most eloquent way testify to the presence of negative and destructive powers in man, which are no different from powers of sin. Humanism indirectly recognizes, through its own theory of progress, that man needs to be healed of all negativity, flaws, defects, and evil powers. A medicine such as this, man attempting to save himself, resembles someone drowning and trying to rescue himself by pulling himself up by his own hair. Understandably, he quickly drowns. There is not a more tragic perception of man and approach to man than that of humanism, because it leads man to the most dreadful catastrophe. Therefore, the holy philosopher, a person who truly knew and understood man and his nature advises, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Truly, no one deceives themselves more than humanists, more than man-worshippers of every kind. In them there is no truth about man. Chapter 1, verse 9 If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The truth about man is the complete opposite of humanism. It rests in sensing, comprehending, and recognizing that all people are under sin and in sin. Only that sense, that comprehension, that recognition awakens man to search for salvation from sin and from its evil powers, to search for the Savior, and to be the Savior of man from sin is only possible for the one who is without sin. Such a person is not anyone among men. The only such person in the human race is our God and Lord Jesus Christ. The testimony to this is the entire experience of the human race. All other so-called saviors of mankind are impostors and self-glorifiers because all of them, without exception, save and heal man of superficial and external sickness, but not of his main and essential sicknesses, the sickness of his being, of sin and in sin, death. Therefore, for all the so-called saviors, death is compulsory for man. Also included in this proposition is that sin is compulsory. To make such absurdities the foundation of man and his prosperity is a tragic undertaking, which always ends in catastrophe. The only way out of this involves impartial examination of man and his real life, inspection of the evil powers of sin actually present in him, and which tarnish his being. An acknowledgement of this, and an admission that only the Immaculate God-Man Christ can save us. Such recognition awakens the man-loving and all-righteous Lord to come to our aid and to save us from sin. Without such a recognition, he will not come to our aid, so as neither to impose himself forcefully upon us, nor to destroy in man the freedom and love upon which he stands and for the sake of which he exists. The God-Man is perfectly righteous. That gives him the right and authority to forgive sins. Furthermore, perfect theanthropic righteousness gives him the power to forgive and remit sins. That is a power possessed only by the sinless God-Man. The holy theologian proclaims, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Faithful to what? Faithful to man. Out of love he is faithful, faithful to the soul, which possesses the image of God. The soul which believes that it is freed from sin can carry man, with the help of the evangelical struggles, to divine perfection. It believes that man can make a perfect man of himself, that he can be pious, righteous, a lover of truth, good, meek, and adorned with all the holy virtues. One thing is asked of us, recognition that we are sinful, and he, the only lover of man and the only Savior, will take care of everything else. He forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And as one who is just and faithful, he gives us divine power to stand fast in the new life, life in righteousness and true holiness. Chapter 2, verse 6. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk, even as he walked. Divinely and clearly stated, truly, every word is a thunder of divine truth. Now we know perfectly what a Christian is. A Christian is he who walks just as Christ walked. By no other means can one either become or remain a Christian. If analyzed, 
That truth would say, a Christian is one who lives as Christ lived, who loves as he loved, who has the truth just as Christ had the truth, who is righteous, holy, meek, humble, merciful, ever patient, lover of God, lover of man, compassionate and good, as he is. For he was all this and remains so, so that we may become this. He did not come into our world to simply display his divine perfections and to take them into that world and leave us astonished and disappointed. Rather, he presented them and left them on earth forever, that they may become ours, and that through their help we may walk just as he walked and live as he lived. Chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. That which is meant by world, the holy theologian explains to us. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The holy theologian understands the world to be love of sin, desire, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the main sins and main organs of sin. Through its own love of sin, the flesh has become the center of sin, a habitation of sin, a breeding ground of sin. And the eyes, insatiable eyes, have dragged the human race into sin. And it is the eyes that drag the human race into sin the most. The eyes are the most hungry and most voracious jackals of sin. If a man does not restrain them through chastity, renew them through affection, tame them through repentance, mollify them through compassion, they ravenously gorge themselves on sins and fill and overrun the entire soul of man. Woe to man as long as he allows his eyes to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But it is to his happiness that he can give to God all of his senses even the eyes, as instruments of righteousness. The third sin, which synthesizes all the sins of the world, is the pride of life. This is the first sin in all worlds, the sin of Satan. It is the source of all sin, which always was and will forever stay as such. It can be said that pride is the ultimate sin. Every sin, through its life force, comes from it and clings to it. The pride of life is woven from countless multifarious conceits, both great and small, both short-term and long-term. Let us remember the primary things, pride of glory, scientific, political, in any rank or position in general, pride of beauty, pride of wealth, pride of benevolence, pride of humility, yes, of humility, pride of charity, pride of success. There is not a virtue that pride cannot convert into a vice. The pride of prayer converts the person praying into a Pharisee, and the ascetic into a self-murderer. So, every sin is, in reality, a sin through pride, because Satan is, in reality, Satan through pride. If it were not for pride, sin would not exist, either in the angelic or in the human world. All of this is not of the Father. That which is of the Father is the only begotten Son of God, and He is the incarnation and personification of humility, along with all His divine perfections. In His gospel, 
the beginning virtue. The ultimate virtue is humility. Humility is the only medicine for pride and all other sins. Chapter 2, verse 17. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The world of sinful pleasures is transient because sin is a dark power and is the only thing that makes man mortal and transient. In reality, through every sin, man does the will of the creator of all sins, the devil, whose will pulls man into death and transience. Sin, first of all, ravages, overturns, perverts the intellectual organs in man, and man becomes insane, declaring transient things, ideas, and passions as his deities, as his main concern, purpose, and meaning of life. This is the primary source of all of man's idolatry, cultural, scientific, philosophical, artistic, political, and religious. In opposition to this stands the God-man, who shows how man overcomes all transience and all deaths, and becomes immortal and eternal. But how does this happen? This happens by doing the will of God. He that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Where is the will of God expressed? It is expressed in the God-man Christ and in his holy gospel. By fulfilling the gospel, man fills himself with immortality, eternal life, and becomes eternal. Who is a true immortal then? Only a true Christian. The holy theologian thinks in antitheses because his observations are the deepest and his revelations are the greatest. He clearly perceives these antitheses, for his gospel is filled with them, God and the devil, Christ and the Antichrist, truth and falsehood, love and hate, light and darkness, righteousness and unrighteousness, good and evil, life and death, virtue and sin. All of this he sees, by way of his unconditional approach and total clarity, to its root. He sees all aspects. He sees each thesis and antithesis in its perfection and completeness. For him, all of that is a vision, a revelation, an experiment, and an experience. The greatest seer of mysteries, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is therefore the first theologian and a true theologian. With him and after him are two more, St. Gregory the Theologian and St. Simeon the New Theologian. Chapter 2, verse 18. Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Everything in opposition to Christ's goodness in the world arose from Satan's evil. In opposition to his truth, all of Satan's lies. In opposition to his love, all of Satan's hatred. In opposition to his God, the complete devil. Simply put, the opposition to Christ is the Antichrist. Anti-Christ, instead of Christ, in place of Christ, and against Christ. Yes, the main desire and the essence of his being are to replace Christ and to occupy his place. To achieve this, he uses any and all means, foremost, through craftiness, disguise, and through misuse of the gospel. He has the appearance of piety, 
but has renounced its power. He has the appearance of humility, but through it conceals and hides pride. He has the appearance of benevolence, but at heart is a malefactor. He has the appearance of a lover of man, but in reality is a murderer of man. He is all of this just to tempt the chosen, to tempt a greater number of people, all people. The Antichrist will be like an incarnation of the devil, because Christ is the incarnation of God. The Antichrist will be the personification of evil, hate, lies, pride, and unrighteousness. For Christ is the embodiment of good, love, truth, humility, and righteousness. In this way, the main Antichrist will be he who will appear before the second coming of the Lord Christ, stand in God's place, and proclaim himself God. But before him there will be a countless number of his forerunners and a countless number of Antichrists. For an Antichrist is anyone who wants to occupy Christ's place, anyone who will put their truth in place of Christ's truth, their righteousness in place of Christ's righteousness, their love in place of Christ's love, their goodness in place of Christ's goodness, their gospel in place of Christ's gospel. All the more so, the Antichrist is any and every opponent of Christ, everyone who battles against the person of Christ, against Christ's truth, love, righteousness. Simply put, against Christ's gospel, meaning against Christ's church, for the church is the incarnation of the gospel. Yes, the incarnate gospel, because it is the body of Christ. The holy seer of mysteries proclaims, Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be manifest that they are not all of us. Where are the Antichrists from? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out, that they might be manifest that they are not all of us. One becomes a Christian, and remains a Christian, only through free will. Free will is, therefore, free, because it always has the power and the right to choose either good or evil, truth or falsehood, love or hate, righteousness or unrighteousness, God or the devil, Christ or Antichrist. Christians who fall away from Christ show that, even through the help of the holy mysteries and the holy virtues, they are neither rooted nor founded nor strengthened in Christ. They have not done so according to their free will. True Christians are founded in Christ. They are members of his theanthropic body, the church. They are communicants of God, a household of God, fellow citizens with the saints and with all saints, and are members of each other, members of one body, Christ's body. Even if they are many, they are one body, for we, being many, are one bread and one body. That is why those who fall from Christ were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, 
what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Christ's theanthropic love is an exceptional, unique kind of love. In all things divine, perfect, and yet incarnate, a visible reality, behold. That love can be seen, viewed, heard, and touched. Its essence is explained in this way. God the Father, through His only Son, gave us the strength to become and to be called the children of God. We who, through sin, became the children of the devil by doing the deeds of our Father. In other words, He adopted us. Our adoption by God happens through the Son of God, the Lord Christ. He who is the Son of God by nature became the Son of Man, so that we may become the sons of God by grace. The power through which He makes this possible is divine love, holy love, and grace-filled love. Through it, the entire human being is reborn and born from God. Hence, if there is thought, love makes it reborn so that it is ever born from God and born as divine thought. If there is a will, love makes it reborn so that it is ever born from God, born as a divine will. For it thus always desires what God desires. If there is a feeling, disposition, soul, or mind, it is the same for them as well. In this manner we become the children of God. This love is a creative and deifying power, the wholehearted realization of the first and greatest commandment, with one's soul, one's thoughts, and one's strength. Through this the entire heart is filled with God, also the entire soul, the entire mind, and all one's strength. And then he makes man born anew, communes him, transfigures him, and again makes him born anew, and the entire man becomes a child of God. Simply put, God deifies man through the deifying power of his divine love. Man, with his entire being, goes through the entire process of salvation, from self-denial to theosis, from rebirth in God to enlightenment by God. This is a deeply and thoroughly personal experience, or better yet, it is a personal experience of God by man, living in God, living according to God. That is why the world does not perceive this, nor does it recognize it, nor is it capable of doing so. This is so because it knew him not. One can know him only through personally experiencing his love as one's own, as the life of one's life, as the soul of one's soul, as the heart of one's heart, as the conscience of one's conscience. In other words, Christ may be known through man's establishing himself within Christ and establishing Christ within himself. Foremost, man through the holy mysteries and holy virtues enters into Christ, becomes Christ-like, and then constantly lives in him and for him. He becomes like Christ. Therefore the holy theologian justly says, The world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. We are of him, the children of God. Chapter 3, verse 6. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, because he is given divine powers which protect him from sin. 
He did not come into our world to be alone in his righteousness and holiness, but rather to share them with us and impart them to us. He became man in order to give all of this to man, to people. He became flesh and took on the body, the theanthropic body, the church, in order to co-incarnate everything with himself, bring everything into himself, make it a part of his body, and engraft it on himself like branches on a vine, a divine vine. Hence, all of his divine energies, the life-creating juices of holiness, love, righteousness, goodness, wisdom, of meekness, and humility, all flow from him through all vines, through all who abide in him. In him abide those who abide in divine love, in divine goodness, meaning in his gospel. Whosoever abideth, meaning dwells, stands, lives in him and through him, sinneth not. For to abide in him requires the help of holiness, which does not desire sin. It drives it away and kills it. Holiness is not different from life and faith, in love, in prayer, in fasting, in righteousness, and in the rest of the virtues. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Sin is living darkness, a living dark power that keeps man from seeing God and that which is of God, and from seeing Christ and that which is of Christ, and from knowing him. Sin holds man in paganism, in godlessness. It is a power that makes one godless and ignorant of God. It does not know God and does not recognize God. To be without God is to say, there is no God. Truly, God is not in sin. Therefore, it labors to prove to everyone how there is no God and to impose this notion and conviction. Through a pure heart, one sees God, but an impure one neither sees him nor knows him. Sin corrupts, ravages, and deadens the soul, the mind, the heart, and all of man's instruments of feeling and perception. And man does not feel God, see him, or recognize him. This means that the knowledge of God is a purely moral fruit, an ethical struggle and process. Because he lives in sin, man does not see and does not know God. He is a pagan and an atheist. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him, neither God nor that which is of God. This means that for healthy perception, feeling, and judgment, it is first necessary to become morally healthy. Man becomes morally healthy when he, by acting according to the holy virtues, heals himself from the all-destructive moral sickness, sin. For correct and normal thinking, moral purity is necessary, even as he is pure, and this is achieved through the holy evangelic life. Chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? What is love? Immortalizing those whom you love, giving the divine and immortal to your beloved ones, giving eternal life to your beloved ones. 
That means giving the eternal divine truth, divine justice, divine love, divine eternity, and the rest of the divine perfections to your beloved ones. This is true and divine eternal love. The Lord Christ has shown it to us in perfection and even in everyday human reality. Furthermore, he gave us power so that we may experience it as our own. The holy theologian proclaims, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. The God-man laid down his soul for us. Out of his love for mankind, he submitted to death on the cross, and by defeating death through death, he gives us eternal and immortal life. In our world, this is the only true, the only divine, and the only immortal love. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, i.e., sacrifice everything that evokes and develops the sense of the divine, immortal and eternal, that, through our Christ-like self-sacrifice, we may give them God, immortality, eternal life, and convince them of all of it. True love is the love that gives and assures immortality and eternal life to the beloved. It is the only one which evokes and develops the sense of God and the sense of immortality. Such love is always sacrificial, always self-sacrificing, forever laying down its soul for its brother. The scale of love is enormous. It begins from the smallest sacrifice and finishes with the greatest. The main object in every sacrifice is that the feeling of love for one's brother is alive. That feeling easily finds compassion for the loved one and it easily evokes love. This is true and real love, the love of God, Christ's love, the love of the gospel. It motivates man to sacrifice anything and everything for his brother. The holy theologian says, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? When the love of God dwells in the heart, the heart is then open for every brother, to serve them through possessions, prayer, fasting, righteousness, goodness, truth, mercy, patience, meekness, humility, and every personal sacrifice, to the extent of laying down for one's brother the most valuable part of the human being, the soul. Chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Our earthly world is the habitation of many and different types of spirits. For the Christian consciousness, it is simply a place for the testing, the trying of spirits. And to find one's way is very hard. The discernment of spirits is simultaneously, a gift of the Holy Spirit and a struggle on man's part. It is a complete science in itself. The Holy Spirit gives man the gift of the discerning of spirits, and he gives that gift for the sake of faith and the virtues that form the one indivisible and evangelic struggle. This struggle is simultaneously a work of the grace of God and the free work of man. Long is man trained and instructed in the discernment of spirits. Gradually, he is perfected, and only the perfect have the gift of discernment of spirits, 
of completely clear orientation, of completely clear knowledge and observation of the essence of good and evil. Therefore the spirit-bearing apostle also proclaims, Strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. This means that the ability to discern good and evil, good and evil spirits, takes spiritual exercise, spiritual gymnastics, and spiritual struggle. Before all else, this is spiritual practice, through which grace-filled wisdom is achieved. It is the only means by which one may know how to conduct oneself correctly in the human world of spirits, and how precisely to discern if a spirit is of God or not. Therefore, the holy theologian, with much love and care, advises Christians, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. The senses, both internal and external, through grace-filled exercises can discern if a spirit is of God or not. The faculties of the senses are exercised through the help of all the grace-filled evangelic virtues, exercised through prayer, so that all the senses may become encompassed by prayer, exercised through love, so that they may be encompassed by love, exercised through mercy, so that they may be encompassed by mercy, and so on. Unexercised and lacking grace, the senses are easily deceived and seduced by false prophets. Chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist. Whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Actually, all the spirits fall into two categories, those that are of God and those that are of the devil. The ones of God recognize and confess that Jesus is the incarnate God, the Logos, the Lord and Savior. Those of the devil are the ones who do not recognize this. The devil's philosophy is this, not to acknowledge God in the world, not to acknowledge his presence in the world, and not to acknowledge his incarnation in the world, to profess and preach that there is no God either in the world or in man, that there is no God in the God-man, that it is senseless to believe that God was incarnated in man, that he cannot live in man, that man is completely without God, a being that does not have God or anything that is of God, that does not have anything, divine, immortal, or eternal. Man is entirely transient, entirely mortal. He belongs in the animal world and is not different from them in any way. That is why it is natural to live as animals, which, therefore, are his lawful ancestors, original forebears and natural brothers. In reality, this is the philosophy of the Antichrist, who desires to replace Christ at any cost, to occupy his place in the world and in man. The holy theologian expresses this truth. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, 
whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Every spirit. A spirit can be a person, a teaching, an idea, or a thought. Every teaching, every idea, every thought that does not acknowledge that Jesus is God, the Savior, the incarnate God, the God-man, originates from the Antichrist. It belongs to the Antichrist. Such persons, teachings, and ideas have existed since Christ appeared in the world, which is why the Holy Seer of Mysteries writes about the Antichrist. Even now already is it in the world. Any man or any idea in the world that denies the Church of Christ is of the Antichrist. The creator of every anti-Christian ideology is the Antichrist, directly or indirectly. In reality, every ideology can be put into categories, those on the side of Christ and those on the side of Antichrist. Man, in actuality, is in the world to solve one problem. Is he with Christ or against Christ? Every man, whether he wants to or not, solves only this problem. He is either a lover of Christ or a fighter against Christ. A third does not exist. A worshiper of Christ or a hater of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. The divine love of Christ guides us in everything, and through all of it supports us. This is why there is no such thing as fear for us. Death does not frighten us, neither does sin nor the devil, nor torture, nor pain, nor suffering. In Christ's love, all of the divine energies of Christ are present. And what can frighten them? Can death, or sin, or hell, or all the powers of evil and hell? If that love, which is always perfect, is in us, it expels every kind of fear from us. That is why Christians are the only true heroes in the world, the only fearless victors on every battlefield in every world. But the path by which Christ's love is perfected in us is very long and difficult, for that path is made up of all the evangelic virtues. An evangelic love increases, lives, and is perfected only through the rest of the evangelic virtues, through prayer, fasting, meekness, humility, patience, hope, faith, and so on. On this path lie exhaustion and fatigue, but it is the only path that leads to perfect love. That is why the holy theologian proclaims, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Chapter 4, verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. This answers the question, why do we love Christ? We love him because he first loved us. In what way? He defeated death, sin, and the devil for us and gives us immortality and eternal life. This is the only true love. All other loves are true only if they are derived from it and insofar as they are like it. Our love of Christ is the natural answer to Christ's love of man. 
Not one single type of love on earth is so completely justified and deserved as our love towards Christ. If a man does not have love towards Christ, is he then a man at all? And has he remained a man? This is a sign that everything has shriveled in him. That which is the most valuable, the most majestic, the most human, that which makes him a man, has degenerated into some freak, into some monstrosity, fallen into a state of damnation, into some demonic state, which is complete hell and complete death. Then, the unusual words of the great apostle become clear to us. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be damned. For outside the love of Christ there is no blessing for a human being. There is neither peace, nor joy, nor truth, nor righteousness, nor immortality, nor eternity, nor paradise, nor bliss. Chapter 4, verses 20 to 21. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? The love of Christ branches out into brotherly love, love of truth, love of righteousness, love of good, love of sanctity, love of peace, love of purity, love of everything that is divine, love for everything that is immortal, and into love of everything that is eternal. All of these types of love are divine, holy, and eternal, because their roots are divine, holy, and eternal. The root is the love of Christ. His objectification, projection, and realization is incarnation and fulfillment. If they are not present, neither is love of Christ. If the love of Christ is not present, then neither is the true love of God and the true love of man. Christ is the God-man, and love towards him is always love towards God and love towards man. Love of God and love of man. In Christianity, the love of man is proof of the love of God, and the love of God is proof of the love of man. Love towards God is naturally manifested in love towards man as being in the image of God. That means as a divine brother and eternal co-brother. Therefore, the holy theologian specially elaborates this good news. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? Man sees a divine brother in his fellow man, an immortal brother. Only when he has felt God and seen God, man feels and sees people in this way only if he is in Christ God and in his divine love. Chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. To love God means to live according to his commandments. Without the help of God, this is difficult and most likely impossible. In return for man's effort and labor, God gives him the power to fulfill his commandments. He gives this according to the extent of his labor. The more he labors in fulfilling the commandments of God, the more grace-filled powers are bestowed on him by God, until it becomes effortless for him to keep the commandments. This is how it works in the greatest of laborers and strugglers. 
God himself fulfills his commandments in them. In them the words of the Holy Apostle are fulfilled word for word. For it is God who worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Love creates in the soul a joyous disposition. Then, those who love fulfill the wishes of the beloved with joy, and often through the greatest of sacrifices. For a man who loves the Lord Christ, the commandments are not difficult. Man loves God if he truly believes in him as God and Lord. And Christ, the man loving God and Lord, gives such a man abundant divine powers, by the aid of which he easily fulfills his divine commandments. Chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath a witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. Three become perfectly one, first of all in the God-man. God, the eternal Spirit, became man, united with flesh and blood. He showed that he is a real man, and a perfect man only in complete unity with God. The Lord Christ was this not just for his sake, but for the sake of the entire human race, transforming himself into the church. He has given all of mankind the necessary powers with which, if they so desire, to gradually transfigure themselves into perfect beings who live through the God-man and in the God-man, especially in the holy mystery of communion. For communion is nothing other than a holy mystery in which God concretely and truly incarnates himself in man. In this way, Man receives the most real and most convincing testimony, that man is only a true man through his unification with God, through life in God, through the constant incarnation in himself of the holy, divine, and grace-filled powers of God. Such is the testimony of God about the God-man, and through him about the most holy trinity. Every man can, if he so desires, Verify it through his own personal experience and personal experiment. God, the omnipotent and omniscient, did all he could to testify to this irrefutable truth to prove that Jesus is truly Savior and God. None of the other realities and truths in the human world have such a great testimony as does the theanthropic reality and truth. When man does not accept God's perfect and irrefutable testimony about Jesus, it signifies and means that he views God as a liar. This is the greatest fall that can happen to the human soul. In essence, it is similar to the fall of Judas. This is because, even though he was surrounded by such convincing and irrefutable testimonies, he did not want to believe in Jesus as God and Savior. The truth is obvious. All the divine and human reasons for believing in Christ as God and Savior are given to mankind in the person and works of the God-man, in his gospel, in his church, and in his saints. Truly, no man has an excuse for not believing in Christ. He who believes in Christ with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength 
experiences the greatest reality of all the divine and human testimonies about Jesus as God and the only Savior of man. This reality becomes a pan-reality in his soul. He lives through it, thinks through it, and feels through it. All of his thoughts combine into one overall thought. All of his feelings combine into one overall feeling. Contained in this pan-thought and pan-feeling is that Christ is my Lord, my God, my Savior, my paradise, my life, my truth, my love, my joy, my eternity, my all, and my everything in every world. Yes, a sincere and personal encounter with the Lord Christ is necessary for man to believe in Him and experience all of this, just as the Samaritans, through personal contact with the Lord Christ, realized and declared to the Samaritan woman who directed them to Jesus, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. A man who lives through faith in the Lord Christ will receive in himself the irrefutable and all-powerful testimony about Jesus as God and Savior, which no power can take away from him. The holy theologian proclaims, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. Chapter 5, verse 15. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. From experience we know this. Our God-pleasing prayers are our most conscious and strongest conviction. There is no hesitation, indecisiveness, or doubt. For let not him who doubteth think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. When we fulfill the will of God, therefore, he fulfills our will. The rule is evangelic. Fulfill the will of God, so that he would fulfill your will. Whatever God desires for you and for others is what you should desire for yourself and others. And be sure that God will fulfill all of your wishes. God told us in his gospel what he desires for you and others. If you live according to the gospel, the Lord will fulfill your every wish. Chapter 5, verse 20 to 21. And we know that the Son of God has come, hath given us an understanding, that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God, the eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. The entire gospel and the entire theology of the Holy Theologian are concisely written in this verse. The Son of God has come, and hath given us an understanding, and we have recognized in him the true God. And he has given us powers through which we have become his, through which we have settled in God, such that with our entire being we are inside him, in the true God, and through him, in eternal life. For he is the true God and eternal life. We are in Jesus Christ. This is the proper answer of Christians to the question, Where are you? Where are you located? Even though we live in a world that lieth in wickedness, we are in Jesus Christ, 
in the true God and in eternal life. If God had not given us understanding, we would not have known the true God. We would have forever remained heathens. For only the God-man Christ is the true God. Whosoever does not see and confess this is a heathen, because he does not know the true God. If he confesses someone else or anything else as a God, again he is a heathen, because he does not know the true God and Lord Jesus Christ. For he, the true God, has not only shown and proved that he alone has eternal life, but that he alone is eternal life, and gives it to everyone who believes in him. The true God is known in this way because he himself is eternal life and gives it to all of his followers. This is the surest measure for the distinction of the true God from the false gods. False is the God that cannot give and secure eternal life for man. No one can do that if they are not capable of defeating death. The God-man is the only one who conquered death through the resurrection. That is why he is the true God and eternal life. Everything else is godlessness and a false god. Acknowledging, confessing, and preaching any other god besides Christ is nothing other than paganism and idolatry. Yes, idolatry. For every type of idolatry is in reality paganism because worshiping any idol is paganism. From the crudest fetishism to the subtlest symbolism, all of these are forms of idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping something in the same fashion as God is worshipped. Not only stone, wood, animals, planets, or statues, but also people, heroes, geniuses, inventors, ideas, passions, cultures, civilizations, sciences, philosophies, art, or anything that which man wants to replace the true God and Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, the holy thunder of New Testament truth ends his wonderful proclamation with the words, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idolatry. Keep yourselves from paganism. Amen. Through the prayers of our holy fathers, of St. Eustine of Chilie, O Lord Jesus Christ our God, have mercy on us. Amen.